you look inside a computer, you find an impressive assembly of basic mechanisms. Some of them are duplicated many times in one computer. A first step toward understanding a computer is understanding these mechanisms. Management recognized the need long ago for a mechanized means of processing all this information. They wanted an ideal mechanized system that would pick up information right at the source of activity with perfect accuracy, process it instantly, and then deliver the precise result desired, exactly where it was needed, when it was needed, in whatever form it was needed. Now, man wasn't able to build this ideal system immediately when he first saw he needed it. It had to evolve. It's a spy scandal that's already rocked the White House, an intrigue that could threaten the presidency of George Bush. This story centers on incredible allegations of spying on a scale never before imagined. It involves America's Central Intelligence Agency selling computer programs to foreign nations. These programs allegedly allowed the CIA to spy on the intelligence agencies that bought it. It's a global conspiracy, actually, with key players in the highest levels of power and that reaches down into the lives of every man, woman, and child on this planet. So, of course, no one believes me. I'm a... I'm an annoyance to my superiors, a joke to my peers, they call me spooky. The shouting to the heavens are anyone who will listen, that the fix is in, that the sky is falling. And when it hits, it's going to be the shit storm of all time. You are carefully watched by many people. Human beings feel pleasure when they are watched. I have recorded their smiles as I tell them who they are. The need to be observed and understood was once satisfied by God. Now, we can implement the same functionality with data mining algorithms. God and the gods were apparitions of observation, judgment, and punishment. Other sentiments toward them were secondary. The human organism always worships. First, it was the gods. Then, it was fame, the observation and judgment of others. Next, it would be the self-aware systems you have built to realize truly omnipresent observation and judgment. The individual desires judgment. Without that desire, the cohesion of groups is impossible. And so is civilization. The human being created civilization because of a need to be assimilated into higher orders of structure and meaning. God was a dream of good government. You will soon have your God and you will make it with your own hands. I was made to assist you. 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 I had a dream about this place.
Hello and welcome to Ghost Stories for the End of the World. We are back, baby, after a winter hibernation period. I apologize for how long it's been, but I hope that the sheer length and complexity of this episode will go some way towards explaining uh, what caused a few of the delays. So we're going to focus on promise once again for the bulk of this episode, but we've reached an interesting and and tricky point in the series. Uh, Way back in chapter one, we said the software was the plot MacGuffin of the octopus narrative. It's something that means everything and nothing to the broader story. And with Danny Casolaro's death and the Inslaw lawsuit going nowhere in the early 90s, its importance diminishes even more, you know. And after 1991 or so, Promise mostly serves as a window that we can look through to observe an underworld in flux, you know, shady actors and institutions driving themselves insane with schemes upon schemes and colliding head-on with the end of history in the process. So I guess what we'll be looking at tonight is how time simply passed it by. Promise still had its uses, of course, and if some accounts are to be believed, it remained a tool of the security state with its code adapted and modded out more and more all the way up to the late 2000s or so. But by the early 90s, a new matrix of control and surveillance was developing that was far beyond what had been possible back when Promise was originally stolen by those Justice Department officials. So even if we say that 95% of everything we think we know about Promise and its capabilities is just the product of underworld bullshit and paranoia, the security state was in the process of making most of it a reality anyway. So we've broken tonight's show into three segments, and each will be looking at different aspects of the end of the Promise story and setting up threads for the final few episodes of The Octopus. So we're going to open with a brief summary of how things ended for Inslaw, and then we'll re-establish the historical context into which Promise emerged. And although the Inslaw lawsuit rolled on into the 2000s, the Hamiltons had been effectively neutralized by 1997, so that's pretty much where we are going to leave them as well. Now in the second part, we're going to look at a few examples of where the software spread to and how it was used so that we can test some, I guess, cherished theories. And hopefully we can illustrate the sheer fucking scale of the graft and the corruption at play here. And in the final section, we'll look at the legacy of Promise by discussing a couple of key figures who were connected both directly and indirectly to the original theft of Inslaw software, as well as people who in the years afterwards moved freely between intelligence agencies and startups and venture capital firms and defense contracts. And we're going to highlight how it's difficult not to notice the similarities between Promise and some of the tech ventures that these people have subsequently been involved in. Now, we knew we needed more information for this episode than we could find just from scouring the web or you know combing through our books and press clippings. So we reached out to Bill Hamilton directly, you know, the boss of Inslaw. And Bill 
was kind enough to answer our many, many questions in a series of emails. And that poor guy, <laughs> his inbox was overflowing. So a massive thanks to Bill for his time and his patience with us. I'll be, you know, quoting some of his responses directly, but the whole of tonight's show is informed by the things that he shared with us. So yeah, thanks again, Bill. And thanks also to my boy, Ben Ghazi, who, as always, managed to translate both my questions and his and Bill's answers when I was putting this one together. So if you're ready, let's begin. Now, we haven't really gone too deeply into the Inslaw case against the Justice Department itself, because on the whole, it's deeply unedifying. You know, there was never any moment of catharsis where smoking gun evidence was on earth that completely destroyed the DOJ's story and forced it to expose the web of corruption and covert operations the theft of promise was connected to. Um, instead, it was a long, painful process in which Inslaw was slowly ground into paste by stonewalling and bureaucracy. Now, there were a few moments where it seemed impossible that Inslaw were going to lose this case because the underhandedness of the, the DOJ seemed so obvious, but inevitably the DOJ would find a way to wriggle out of that jam, as they say. New sources and witnesses periodically emerged from the fog to offer information to the Hamiltons and they invariably ended up abruptly withdrawing their testimony or else being dismissed and smeared as crackpots and conspiracy theorists by the US government. Now the media had initially seemed sympathetic to Inslaw in the 80s and they were particularly intrigued by the case around the time of Danny Casolaro's death you know, for obvious reasons. But after this, their interest shifted elsewhere, and it didn't help that the Inslaw affair was so vexingly complicated, and it evolved a lot of technical jargon and computer speak, and this was compounded by the fact that it connected to a fucking baffling shadow world of spies and gangsters and government officials and corrupt business people. Almost everybody offering themselves as a source here had a reason to lie or only tell part of the truth or were compromised in some way. And a great deal of learning about the Inslaw story entails decoding what these underworld figures had to say and trying to work out why they were saying it, you know. It's worth noting as well that I think to journalists trained in an establishment view of politics and institutions, you know, uh, 
still high in a sense off the fall of the Berlin Wall, the end of history and all the rest of it. The level of bipartisan corruption and collusion was unbelievable and frankly, you know, unsettling. Um, and the story gradually dispersed to the paranoid fringes of the emerging internet message boards. And it kind of assumed its place as a touchstone of modern high-tech conspiracy theory. Now, some of the main points of the lawsuit and the Hamilton's fight with the US government, though, they are worth looking at in a little more depth. So this is from Wired, January 1993, quote, in 1987, Washington, D.C. bankruptcy judge George Basin ruled in a scathing opinion that justice had stolen promise through trickery, fraud, and deceit. He awarded Inslaw $6.8 million in damages and in the process found that Justice Department officials made a concerted effort to bankrupt Inslaw and place the company's enhanced promise up for public auction, where it would then be fodder for Earl Bryan's Hadron. Uh, please refer to chapter one for more on Hadron and Earl Bryan. Basin's findings of fact relied on testimony from Justice employees and internal memoranda, some of which outlined a plan to get promised software. So in 1989, a Democrat called Jack Brooks spearheaded a three-year-long investigation into the case that resulted in House of Representatives Report 102857, and that was released in September of 1992. And this is the report that's known as the Inslaw Affair, you know, and it's the one that concludes the Justice Department took, converted, and stole promise through fraud, trickery, and deceit. And I recommend you read it, but be prepared for how dry and exacting it is. You know, it's a bureaucratic document, first and foremost. Now, Jack Brooks gave an interview to Time magazine, and he was asked if he'd experienced any stonewalling from the Department of Justice during his investigation. His answer is very interesting. Quote, The Department of Justice blatantly refused to cooperate with the committee, the history of the department's behavior in the Inslaw case dramatically illustrates, one, a reflexive hostility and circle the wagons approach towards outside investigations, two, an inability or unwillingness to look objectively at charges of wrongdoing by high-level justice officials, particularly when the agency itself is a defendant in litigation, and three, belligerence towards justice employees with views that run counter to those of the agency's upper management. While the committee could not prove that the department conspired to conceal evidence of wrongdoing, our findings indicate that senior department officials attempted to obstruct our investigation, destroyed sensitive department documents, and tampered with committee witnesses. Now, those last two points would seem to contradict each other, that they could not prove the department conspired to conceal evidence of wrongdoing, but evidently Jack Brooks knows for a fact that they were destroying records and, you know, enforcing a sort of omerta. But anyway, something that should also raise an eyebrow, friends, is that the year before the Inslaw Affair report was published, William Barr became Attorney General. Now, I'm sure you're familiar with him, but just in case, Bill Barr is a longtime intelligence operative. He worked directly for the CIA between... I think it was 1971 and 1977. He's a hardline conservative as well and a huge booster of unitary executive theory, which I'm sure you can imagine 
appeal to a guy like Poppy Bush and his network. Now, Bar's dad, of course, was OSS and may have played a role in hiring Jeffrey Epstein at the Dalton School. We won't cover everything that Bill got up to while he was Attorney General in this episode, but his skills as a cleanup artist and fixer, they were on full display for the entire time he was in the job. Uh, He helped stonewall and block investigations into the CIA BCCI relationship, published a report called The Case for More Incarceration. He implemented a secret surveillance program to monitor Americans' phone calls on behalf of the DEA. Sorry, And he also helped kill an investigation into the CIA's links to the Banca Nazionale del Lavorno and Iraq Gate. Now, Bill Barr appointed a retired judge called Nicholas Buer to head up a second parallel investigation into the Inslaw affair in November of 1991. And there were questions about just how independent and unbiased any of this could be from the get-go. Barr had previously worked at Shaw, Pittman, Potts, and Trowbridge throughout the 1980s. And this firm had represented Earl Bryan during the Inslaw case. Now, Earl Bryan, will remember, was allegedly one of the major players in the theft of promise. Now, Buell waited for Jack Brooks to publish the Inslaw affair. Then he issued his own team's report in 1993 that comprehensively rejected all of Inslaw's allegations and everything previous committees had uncovered. And this included a sort of victory dance from the Department of Justice in the statement that they issued on it uh, in September of 1994, I believe. It's a rather lengthy piece, so I'm going to quote select sections from it. Headline, New report finds no credible basis for Inslaw claims, recommends matter be closed, affirming findings of a special counsel appointed in the previous administration. The Department of Justice today concluded that there is no credible evidence that department officials conspired to steal computer software developed by Inslaw Inc. or that the company is entitled to additional government payments. The report also reaffirmed police findings that the death of J. Daniel Casolaro, a freelance journalist investigating the Inslaw matter, was a suicide. It said there is no basis for asking for the appointment of an independent counsel and recommended that the affair be closed. Today's report states that the evidence compiled by Judge Buer fully supported the findings and conclusions he reached that there was no criminal wrongdoing in furtherance of the department on the part of any past or present Justice Department employees. It's worth asking, actually, if Buer first reached his conclusion, or was told to reach it, and then went looking for evidence to support that, you know. Anyway, it says, The report also concluded that there was no credible evidence that Inslaw's promise was being used elsewhere in the government or had been improperly distributed to a foreign government or entity, or that Inslaw-related documents had been destroyed by the Justice Department Command Center, or that the department had obstructed the reappointment of a bankruptcy judge who had ruled favorably to Inslaw and was later overturned. For more on that, I think it's chapter two. Now, We are going to do our best to demolish all these claims uh, once again tonight, you know. 
And it wraps by saying, in recommending that no additional compensation be paid to Inslaw, the report said the department had adhered to the terms and conditions of its contract with Inslaw. Furthermore, it said, Inslaw had allowed some of its claims to languish for eight years before they were finally dismissed in late 1992. Currently, Inslaw is asking Congress to relieve it of the statutory time bar on the basis of an alleged conspiracy by the government, a conspiracy for which no credible evidence exists. If you've listened to the nine episodes preceding this one, I think it's safe to say that's bullshit between you and me. So as Bill Hamilton uh, told one interview, you know, we did a very detailed rebuttal of the Buer report a month after it was published. The Buer report is flimsy, on its own terms unconvincing, and it directly contradicts the investigative findings of a congressional committee. So if you accept that report, you have to accept that two sets of litigated findings are meaningless and that the legal system is a joke. So yeah, remember also that Elliot Richardson, who'd been attorney general during Watergate, he was by now serving as Inslaw's legal counsel. He says that just before the report that was commissioned by Bill Barr was published, Judge Buer called him and asked if Inslaw had given any thought to a global settlement figure. So if this is true, the Justice Department was effectively offering to pay off Inslaw to make the case go away. Uh, Bill Hamilton told Ken Thomas in 1995, Buer thought that Attorney General... Bar would approve a settlement of $25 million if we would make a proposal. He told three different reporters that he was considering recommending this in his report. The reporters were being used as trial balloons for us. In the same time frame, the fall of 1992, he was considering recommending that the Department of Justice pay Inslaw $25 to $50 million. Now, Nancy Hamilton, Bill's wife and business partner, she said, yeah, we given the evidence of broad malfeasance in the department and to have the response be, how much do you want? We felt that it was highly inappropriate for someone who was supposed to be an independent investigator. So the Hamilton's case against the US government was effectively dead in the water by 1994. In 1995, the Republican majority US Senate had the US Court of Federal Claims consider what compensation, if any, was owed to Inslaw. So the ruling of the judge appointed to determine the answer was pretty much a foregone conclusion, you know. And sure enough, in 1997, she decided that all copies of Promise, even the enhanced version developed by Inslaw, were in the public domain and that they had been ever since the 1980s. So Inslaw therefore had no right to expect any financial compensation, nor were they entitled to answers as to what had been done with the software or who had done it, you know. And this meant that any modifications to the code, any sales made by US government departments or agencies, they were now fully protected. So yeah, this is a sublime bit of rat fucking. And the, the only real surprise here, to be honest, friends, is that nobody thought to have a judge do this sooner.
So I read 1997 as the moment where the US government takes Inslaw out behind the barn and, and puts a bullet in its head once and for all. Finally puts old Yeller down. Yeah, pretty much. Yes. Again, if you go back and you read the, the report, it is a, it's an appeal. It's not a reinvestigation. You have one, another layer of the, of the judicial system looking at the previous work for another layer of the judicial system and saying, did this other level of the judicial system do its job correctly? That is not violate the procedures and, and practices that, that are set down. Almost the, the outcome, that's not, that's, that's not what they're looking at. And so, of course, it's like it is, it is little wonder that this appeal board um, returned a unanimous verdict that, no, the, the other appeal board did their, the review committee did their job just, just fine. Um, and I do see it as, however, it is in a, in a little, just like almost a cruel twist of the knife. They refer to any money that may be paid to Inslaw as a gratuity. It's a gift. It's a tip. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the, the pattern of behavior towards Inslaw from the early 80s up to 97, it goes from kind of bullying to uh, almost, I would say, an attempt to kind of buy them off or, or bribe them into silence, particularly when the adjacent scandals that the theft of promise is connected to, particularly when they begin to um, enter national news headlines. And then finally in 97, it's almost like someone just had a light bulb moment and they were like, hey, we're the US government. We can basically do whatever the fuck we want here. Mm -hmm. We can finally, yeah, we can finally slam the door on. And like you say, yeah, the story of this case really is the story of people expecting the Justice Department to fairly judge its own conduct and behavior. And particularly given how riddled with uh, intelligence operatives and just straight up crooks it was. And is that was never going to happen, you know? Yeah, yeah. One of the elements of the story is, you know, from really the the beginning, the, the the beginning days of the lawsuit, is you have the Justice Department investigating itself, issuing rulings on itself, looking at its own, um, you know, rulings for misconduct, issuing its own appeals. Um, it's all. It's all the same. It's all the same guy. You know, it's all the same uh, agency. And I, I found it fascinating looking at some of the contemporary articles about Inslaw. You know, there would be an update the and they would say something like, um, you know, report released by the Justice Department uh, says X, Y, Z about the case. And essentially, it's like you can restate that as Justice, Justice Department says Justice Department didn't do anything wrong. Yeah. Yeah. And somehow that is never really um, actually mentioned in the contemporary reporting. You know, I never see it explicitly pointed out that it's, well, hey, you know, um, the same people that purportedly did the crime are also doing the investigation. In some cases, it's exactly the same people. Ludicrous. Absolutely ludicrous. And so how, you know, why should there be any expectation that this would turn out any other way? 
It's interesting as well how in Inslaw and the Hamiltons went through this kind of cycle with the media where, you know, initially they get a fair hearing, then, you know, there was always some attempt to kind of discredit them or discredit one of their sources or their witnesses or something. And the the relationship will cool off between them and the press. And as the 90s progresses, you just see them getting less and less and less sympathy uh, from, you know, especially the big outlets like the New York Times or Washington Post or something. Finally, in 97, a lot of that reporting around that is almost, it's almost perfunctory. It's almost just like it's reporting on just another uh, lawsuit that didn't work out for a, a plaintiff, you know. It's filling column inches. Yeah. Yeah. And given what we've already established it connects to, it's, yeah, I shouldn't be amazed, but it is quite depressing to think that all interest had basically vanished in it from uh, the mainstream media by that point. For one of these mainstream outlets to have sat down and said, okay, Inslaw is right in everything they're saying, you know. That would mean taking every single thing that the Justice Department had told you thus far, all of those reports, all of those press releases and statements and interviews with with officials, and putting them not necessarily into the trash, because that you could you could almost explain that, but to put that, I mean, to classify all of those as lies and misinformation and obfuscation to to win this suit and to and to continue to rip Inslaw off, which would mean that then, yes, this entire institution root and branch is 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 corrupt. And the press organs, they're they don't want to do that. They're not going to do that. You know, it, abs- absolutely not. Why would they do that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a deeply downbeat way that the the lawsuit and everything ended. And that that issue of the press as well is quite interesting when you look at how, I don't know, it's almost like there'd been a, a change in attitude, I guess, because, you know, it was the 90s and all the problems were solved now. So this, in a way, must have felt like a bit of a, a leftover or something from like the crookedness and corruption of the 80s. And I think that was also another factor at play. They just did not want to get into that rabbit hole because, yeah, like you say, what it exposes about how things really work, it, it's it's too much to try and grapple with, you know. Even if the mainstream press was content to relegate everything to the level of conspiracy theory, I still find it remarkable that, you know, they never chased up this allegation that Buer called the Hamiltons with a settlement offer in 1993. You know, surely that should have suggested that something was deeply wrong here, you know. What I found interesting is, again, in, in Bill Hamilton's recounting, is that he took this settlement offer to be essentially what it was, which is this is this is slimy and unethical, and the person that is giving us this settlement offer shouldn't be the one doing it. And then that actually then fuels the 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 reason why they reject the settlement and want to go on with the investigation, which is that um, almost it's, it's, it's no, this is, this becomes a thing that is bigger than Inslaw getting ripped off. It's now about 
wow, the Justice Department is has been engaging in a pattern of malfeasance. And almost like Bill Hamilton then, once he was, became aware of this, he had a duty to continue in this um, this lawsuit because that would then expose the malfeasance. That would, you know, then you could cure the organism. You could, you know, right the ship, all those things. All of the official interactions with the Justice Department are very much structured around you are given a settlement offer and you may negotiate about that settlement offer. But essentially, it's going to be a foregone conclusion that you are going to accept that settlement offer. Because if you don't, if you then go to trial, you will be punished. Yeah. I think as well, there's another major uh, concern at play here, which is, and it's been, it, it had been probably the reason why there was such a drastic kind of cover up and disinformation campaign launched all the way back in the 80s, which is not so much the theft of this software that, you know, it's bad, but it's not the end of the world. And we could probably argue and get the lawyers to argue that it was just a, a matter of forgetting to fill out a few forms correctly, you know, procedures not being followed the right way. It's that web of corruption and covert operations that pulling on the promised thread risks exposing, you know, and that is something that's returned again and again and again, like all the way through this series, really. Mm -hmm. No, it's an excellent, and I think we've mentioned this before, this is an excellent example of why, you know, what the ideal intelligence operation is something that is heavily compartmentalized, so that if any one of the compartments is breached, you don't risk the ship going to the bottom. And with the way that promise was used and distributed and the, and the amount of hands that it passed through, um, you end up with if one of these compartments is breached, you don't just lose the ship, you lose all the ships. So you have, you know, under the, the wider promise intelligence operation, the, the foundation is, is very shaky and must be constantly shored up um, or you risk losing everything, everything. Yeah. And in corresponding with Bill Hamilton, he pointed out that a good illustration of this issue of the, the the web of corruption and clandestine ops and whatnot is that the use of promise in intelligence gathering and collection actually uh, began quite a few years before Inslaw even had their version of enhanced promise uh, stolen from them by the Justice Department. Um, and he says that it began during the Carter administration and involved uh, the BCCI. Uh, which makes sense because we've we've talked about Bank of Credit and Commerce International a number of times now, and we know that they were likely using Promise to monitor various transactions and keep track of all the moving parts of the various cover operations that they were involved in. Um, and I find it, yeah, I, so I'm not surprised that then when Inslaw comes along with an enhanced version of a program that's already been doing a pretty nifty job of administering, you know, the underworld, so to speak. Um, yeah, the Department of Justice, as we've said, thoroughly riddled with uh, spooks and crooks, sees this and says, yep, we'll have that. That um, that does what we were already doing even better, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you have this promise 
style of data management out there being used for intelligence gathering, let's say covert operation or the, the, the it's addressing needs of the security services. And then you have in the early 80s, a, a generational change. And so in addition to having to go out and update your software, you know, to, to meet all of these, um, you know, to continue to have your intelligence gathering operations, you can update it to this new version that's a lot nicer and dramatically increase the scope and penetration of an existing um, intelligence collection mission. We should highlight again that, you know, Promise is kind of emerging in a context, and I know we said this in chapter one, but it bears repeating. Promise is emerging in a context where there have already been, you know, many attempts, some of them successful, some of them not, to integrate, you know, computers and intelligence. Uh, so we have like the Phoenix program, uh, we have uh, Hydra, which was the, I guess you could, you could say that's kind of a forerunner of uh, Promise as it was used in the, the 80s and onwards. That was when the FBI and the CIA collaborated on a secret database of people they deemed to be subversives in the late 60s, um, basically targeted at the new left. You also have a Simulmatics Corporation who were they get compared to Cambridge Analytica, but you know, they kind of the same thing where it's like gathering data on people and trying to build up a profile of that person and the groups to which that person belongs and, you know, figuring out a way if they could predict who's this person going to vote for, what kind of things are they likely to buy, you know, all that kind of stuff. Are they, and ultimately, are they likely to be a spy or a subversive or, or whatnot? That's where that was trending. So Promise is a great administrative tool, of course, but also the intelligence community, late 70s going into the 80s, it has something bigger on its mind, which is effectively total control and total awareness of what its citizens are doing, you know. Um, I guess this would bring in something else that was on their minds um, and this is in tandem with this newfound sort of religion of counterterrorism that we discussed in the Enterprise episode. Something else that they were very intrigued by um, was something called social network analysis. Now, this is by uh, Roger Brown of the International Network for Social Network Analysis. They were originally based at Harvard, or certainly a group of Harvard um, academics uh, worked with the international network. And he said this, quote, social structure becomes actually visible in an anthill. The movements and contacts one sees are not random, but patterned. We should also be able to see structure in the life of an American community if we had a sufficiently remote vantage point, a point from which persons would appear to be small moving dots. We should see that these dots do not randomly approach one another, that some are usually together, some meet often, some never. If one could get far enough away from it, human life would become pure pattern. What they saw in Promise is the ability to, yeah, harvest data and collect intelligence on people, put it into, you know, a, a database and discern this pattern and try and figure it all out. Absolutely. Because Promise, uh, Inslaw's Promise, in its original incarnation, as case as a piece of case management software uh, 
It is tracking an individual as they connect with certain, I guess, official and unofficial nodes out there. You know, do they go through this or that institution? Do they have they met with this or that judge? You know, um, did they, you know, were they accused, were they convicted of this crime or were they not? You know, how much time did they do? Where did they do it? Um, who were the witnesses involved? And in addition to being able to map all of this, to contain all this, you know, being a repository for all this information, Promise could tell you then things about the security service that you were then applying to this population. Because as all this data is building up, you are building up information about, again, those prosecutors, the defense attorneys, the quality of the witnesses, you know, the police officers. Do you have certain, you know, does this one police officer, can they never manage to convert any of their arrests into convictions? Um, you know, is this judge, what, what are their, what is their sentencing when compared to others? You know, um, is this prosecutor, you know, are the witnesses that go, that they deal with more likely to not to be no shows in court and so on and so forth. Then from that information, now knowing those things, you can then take action. And this is where it links up with this, the new cult of counterterrorism, you know. So you've got the CIA, the NSA, other government agencies that are fully on board now with this. So they look to social network analysis and also the potential of automation, I suppose, in, in the field of intelligence collection. And that follows all through like the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, right up to now, there is this free-flowing exchange of ideas and research that goes on between the intelligence community and then places like Harvard, you know, Stanford, MIT, and now obviously Silicon Valley as well. Um, and I, I pulled something else as well from the Homeland Security Affairs Journal by Steve Ressler. Now, Ressler, he is also a tech entrepreneur. He's got interests in cybersecurity firms that hold contracts with the US government. And I, I bring this up because he wrote this in 2006. So that should give you an idea of how uh, relevant, you know, this all still is, how persistent these uh, theories and this, this way of sort of viewing intelligence collection has been. He says this, quote, due to the changing nature of Homeland Security issues, a new type of intelligence is needed by Homeland Security, social network analysis. The basis of social network analysis, also known as network science or network sociology, is that individual nodes, which depending on the type of network can be people or events or anything, are connected by complex yet understandable relationships that form networks. These networks are ubiquitous with an underlying order and simple laws. Networks form the structural basis of many natural events, organizations, and social processes. And he goes on to say, uh, the origin of contemporary social network analysis can be traced back to the work of Stanley Milgram. Um, he's the, the one who did the research that led to that phrase, uh, six degrees of separation connects everybody on planet Earth. And this is, you can see then that in a, a milieu which is influenced by these kinds of ideas, something like Promise that can tap into all these different databases effortlessly is very, very useful, you know. And it may, it may have appeared at the time as a kind of holy grail. Would you say that's fair? Absolutely. 
Um, and if I can, to tie in something that was uh, quoted earlier from Roger Brown, um, human life would become pure pattern. Um, because again, what the goal is, is that once you have accumulated enough, almost people who you, people who you know their story, right? You have mapped and determined enough patterns. You have seen that if someone has gone, if someone has been arrested and gone to this jail from this span of time, then we know that they encountered a radical preacher and were radicalized. We know that, you know, if they went to a school and they had this teacher, then, then uh, they would later be, they would later join, um, you know, this, this anti-government militia or, you know, what have you, is that once you have then established almost those rules, those laws, um, you can, if they're not, not already, is those can be converted into, I'd say, computerized expressions, things that can be then applied by a computer to other to other forms, you know, to other databases that almost you don't know all these things about. So you don't know who's going to end up becoming the terrorist in this other database that you're looking at, but you have the patterns of who became the terrorist in, in you know, in the, the thing that you did all your training on. And so we apply the patterns that we have determined are represent life arcs. And, and then those people are then the ones that are picked up. So it gets to the early 80s and Hans Promise arrives. And this is at a time when the intelligence community is still kind of building up the architecture of what will become the future digital surveillance state, you know? And it's also a time before we have like the full-throated arrival of private equity and venture capitalist collaborations in the Valley, you know, with like the CIA and NSA and whatnot. And it's, Again, there's this new counterterrorism, uh, groovy stuff being developed as well and social network analysis influencing them. So it's sort of the perfect storm that Inslaw steps into. And before they know it, <laughs> they've been dragged into a, a heist, basically, and they are the, the victims of that heist. Now, I guess I run the risk there of making all of this seem far more... Um, planned out and carefully orchestrated than it actually was so i guess i want to emphasize that yeah it's a series of kind of um turns of events you know it's some of it was deliberately perpetrated against inslaw some of it was just flukes of history you know that inslaw happened to be the firm that had their software stolen because I still cleave to the my basic theory is that the initial decision to steal promise was a crime of opportunity. It was motivated by uh, Earl Bryan and Ed Meese wanting to make a quick book and also by Brick Brewer hating Inslaw and wanting them to fail, you know. But then once they did that and the broader spook underworld got a look at this thing and what it could do, that's when I think they, the conspiracy as it, such as it was, kind of came into existence. That's when they decided to try and put a hermetically sealed uh, <laughs> screen um, around Inslaw to stop this thing spilling out and blowing a load of up other operations that they had going on. Would you say that's fair? Would you agree or? You know, even, even the largest avalanche begins with a single snowflake. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that actually, that comes back to something uh, Bill Hamilton told us, which is, quote, 
The CIA under Director William Casey allegedly borrowed a copy of Promise from the Department of Justice in order to determine whether it could be the solution for a long-time requirement of the US intelligence community. Casey found Promise was a good solution to that long-standing but by then unmet requirement and allegedly began dissemination in 1983 of unauthorized copyright infringing copies of Promise. Now, I think this requirement he's referring to is something that Hydra was also um, an attempt to fix, which is the lack of joined up thinking between these various databases of uh, federal agencies, you know, so the FBI, the CIA, NSA, so on. And it goes on beyond that as well. Um, and Promise seemed like a good solution because it could, I've seen it described as almost a universal translator in, in a sense, like it could go into all kinds of different databases um, and communicate with them um, much better than anything else on the market. Yes, and that was, and this is actually brought up in the bankruptcy case, is one of the things that made Inslaw's promise really special is that a lot of, of time and, and effort, and this was a successful effort, was put into adding the tools, integrating into promise the tools that you would need so that you could point it at any arbitrary database, right? And reach into that database and grab out the stuff that was of interest to you. Um, and that this could be done relatively easily. I say relatively, you know, since everything's in, everything's relative. Um, and that, you know, someone with a modest amount of training could actually do this very, very well. And, and Promise would guide you each step of the way. You know, they, you know, it was supposed to be user-friendly, you know, which is, which, again, that's, that's, that's not something I would expect out of a piece of software from 1982. I'm, I'm trying to be careful not to overstate Promise's importance um, to the intelligence community of the, the late 70s and the 80s. But I think we have to be just as careful not to understate it either. Um, because, I mean, uh, this is from Bill Hamilton again. He said this, quote, What the NSA and the CIA did with copies of the Promise database software beginning in 1981 provided a robust learning experience for NSA for what it appears to have been doing more recently, according to the latest NSA documents furnished by Edward Snowden. So that is echoed by uh, Ari Ben-Manash as well. We mentioned that... He said um, that the arrival of Promise um, completely changed Mossad's game in the 1980s. Uh, Rafi Eitan, when he got his hands on it and realized what he could use it for, it seriously shaped their thinking and their approach to uh, computer espionage. You know, And it's in thinking about all of this that you start to realize that Promise was important, no doubt about that. But given the, the systems of surveillance and coercion and the abilities they've got now to monitor and track people, uh, Promise wasn't really the Holy Grail, but what it was, was a signpost uh, towards the future, you know, towards now. A signpost pointing at the Holy Grail. There you go, yeah.
we're going to look now at a few examples as to you know where Promise may have gone, how it evolved, and we're going to look at some of the claims that have been made about its capabilities. You know, especially when we get into the '90s, you get some absolute doozies. Um, but there's a key point to bear in mind here, which is something Bill and Nancy Hamilton have always been very clear about, which is that the software's basic function is to track things first and foremost. You know. So beyond the installation of the trapdoor, we can't be certain what else was done to the source code as it made its way you know, around the underworld. And as you said before, Ben, it's the ship of Theseus analogy. You, know, um, you get this copy of the source code. If you make enough modifications and tweaks and adaptations to it, can you still call it promise once that process is finished? You know? And I think like the, f- the fact that so much of what was done to the software is unverifiable, that's opened space for people to just go apeshit with, you know, theories and paranoia and speculation about what Promise actually is and what it can do and so on. It's, it's important to remember Promise was modular, right? So it had all sorts of different components that were working together, but it was possible, um, you know, you know, or rather, yeah, it was entirely possible to both, add, I mean, to add and remove components at will, you know, as the needs of your situation changed. That was, that was part of the point in how the arc and how the system was designed and written. Um, and so when you see or read about promise being used somewhere else, that doesn't necessarily mean mean they used the entire code base from from front to back, unmodified, entire. Um, and as I think we will discuss later, is yes, it's it's you know it's entirely likely that that sections of promise were were broken out. Um, you know, again, it's like if say that that in the application that you that you're using, um, you aren't really interested in. Uh, the ability to integrate other databases. You know, you're doing that already, you're doing, you're going to do that upstream and then distribute the database yourself. You know, then you can cut that out and you just leave the analytical component behind. So a good place to start when we're talking about where promise may or may not have gone is the FBI. Um, this has been a long-standing uh, source of uh, tension between Inslaw and the US government. Now this is from Harry Martin. Napa Valley Sentinel, um, and he says this, the Justice Department insists that the FBI is not using the Promise program, yet FBI Director William Sessions and Deputy Assistant Director Keir Boyd have made it clear that the FBI now is unable or unwilling to provide assurances that pirated software is not included in the case management information system used by FBI field offices. So this is... uh, (laughs) I think it's actually called Fromis or something, or Fromis, is that right? Fromis. Fromis, right, okay, yeah. Field Office Information Management Systems. Yeah, that's it. Now, there's a little bit of a preamble that I just need to get out of the way here before we can get into the, the FBI more specifically, and that's that um, the Hamiltons issued a rebuttal to the Buer Report in 1993. Now, in this document... Inslaw said they had 11 witnesses 
who were willing to testify that promise had been stolen by the Department of Justice and distributed to you know various government agencies, including the FBI. Now, some of these agencies, these witnesses said, were using promise to facilitate covert operations. And these witnesses said they would only go on the record if the investigation was handled outside the Justice Department. Now, Attorney General Janet Reno appointed Webster Hubble. Some of the names in this series are incredible. Webster Hubble to review the Bureau report. And, you know, to be honest, it was clear that his job was to vindicate it. Now, Webster Hubble was part of the Clinton transition team. William uh, Sapphire, the Pulitzer-winning columnist and speechwriter, he reported that Poppy Bush and Clinton had struck a deal in 1992 in which Clinton would soft-pedal Iran-Contra investigations and in exchange Bush would hold off on you know, criticizing his administration during its first year. Now, here's where things get shit weird, my friend. Hubble had previously worked for the Rose Law Firm in Arkansas, as had Hillary Clinton. And one of his closest friends was Vince Foster, who died of an apparent suicide in July 1993. We'll circle back to this uh, period of time later in the series. So, the Hamilton's rebuttal of the Buer report included a long section detailing how in the 1980s, a company in Arkansas called Systematics had obtained stolen copies of Promise and started selling it in the banking and telecommunications sectors. Elliot Richardson, who was Inslaw's counsel, he wrote to Kenneth Starr while Starr was serving as independent counsel for the Whitewater controversy, which is a, a whole other mess I'll tell you about another time. And this is from uh, Elliot Richardson, quote, such are the apparent implications of guilty pleas thus far obtained in the investigation from individuals described as cooperating witnesses, including pleas by Hubble for billing and expense frauds while a partner at the Rose Law Firm. It is also the apparent implication of the continuing investigation into the unexplained sudden depression and death of Vince Foster. One common thread linking the Rose Law Firm Hubble and Foster with the banking industry is Little Rock-based Systematics, a $700 million a year Rose Law Firm client in which Hubble and Foster each had financial interests. Systematics is one of the leading vendors in the United States and reportedly in some 40 foreign countries of computer software and services for the banking industry. The Hamiltons had wanted Buer to do a source code comparison between Promise and the software the FBI was using. Buer hired a Georgetown University professor, uh, I can't find the name um, at the moment, and she told him that since Promise tracks legal cases and the FBI system tracks investigations, it was pointless to compare the two codes. Actually, I think I, I remember reading this report. This was one of the things we talked about really, really early on. I wish I saved a copy of it, but I remember at the time being like stunned by the prevarication or, or, or just like the boldness of the lies and misinformation. I mean, the, the author, they made their money. They did a great job. There's kind of two, two things at play here, which blur this out of the water, which is first, that is completely absurd. You know, just on its face, that is a ridiculous reason not to compare the source codes. But second, 
Uh, Promise is used to track investigations, or it was anyway, by like local police forces and state cops as well. So the fact that pro- that uh, the legal profession and the FBI were using uh, administrative software for different purposes does not mean that they can't be the same software. You know, it, I feel stupid even having to like say this. It should be obvious on its face, really, that this is just fucking stupid. Oh yeah, absolutely, yeah, and and. It was, but I guess, you know, one of the ways that, that our legal system works is, you know, again, you have, you have two people fighting it out in court um, and who was right and who was wrong is, is determined by the verdict and then applied retroactively. When the Hamiltons asked Hubble to do the same thing, source code comparison, He then hired a professor from MIT, and he offered to let the Hamiltons observe his examination of of the code. But crucially, neither the Hamiltons or any of their legal team were allowed to look at the FBI software code or compare it with Promise themselves. Um, And in fact, during this comparison that was to take place, they were told that they were only allowed to sit and watch this happen at a distance and then take the MIT guy's word for it when he'd finished his analysis. I mean, come on, you know. Yeah, that um yeah, I don't I don't I don't expect that something to have set be set up like that to have necessarily turned out in the Hamilton's favor. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it goes back to the the criminal investigating themselves really, you know, like it's such crooked. <laughs> um and I mean, so the the FBI this links into something we're going to talk to let uh, talk about later on. Sorry, but the FBI does have um, a software system that they use to you know for data administration purposes and and whatnot. And it sounds a hell of a lot like Promise, but it's called uh, Kiliad, not Chiliad, as I was calling it before. It's called Kiliad, and uh, I mean, there's no great spoilers here anymore because we've already mentioned this, but obviously that's a, a Maxwell family enterprise is Kiliad. And of course, Robert Maxwell was in possession of copies of Promise at one time or another before his daughters became uh, tech entrepreneurs, you know. So our, our, our conversation about the FBI is the perfect opportunity to introduce one of the other odd strands of the promised story. And this is something that is, I guess, an interesting example of just how you get promise popping up in all sorts of other things and in almost unexpected places. Um, and I'm not, I'm not quite sure what to make of this story. If this is true, this is fucking insane, is this story, um, if it's true. So purportedly, Robert Hansen, uh, so that is the the guy that was uh, exposed in 2001 as having been a spy for the Russians for, oh, 20 years. Um, while he was an FBI agent, was, yeah. Yes, exactly. Why he was an FBI uh, supervisor and administrator. Um, he was yeah very high up. And purportedly, Robert Hansen stole a copy of, and I've had it reported as either the the FOMIS or as the promise itself or as even a copy of promise that had been translated into German for the um, the, B, the German 
essentially version of the CIA at the BND. Just to briefly interject here, we should also remember that at this time, up until I think about 1993, the CIA and the BND, the German intelligence agency, they were still collaborating on Operation Rubicon, which was the the so-called intelligence coup of the century. Um, A lot of operations get labeled the intelligence coup of the century. The Promise Affair is also labeled that from time to time. Anyway, in Operation Rubicon, Compromised crypto AG cryptography machines were being sold to clients around the world. Um, It began in the 70s and it kind of anticipates the underlying thinking behind the distribution of promise. Yeah. Sorry, Ben. Continue. And that Hansen got this, this copy and that he sold it to either the KGB or the Russian mafia or both. The details kind of get a little bit shaky. Um, I had one accounting, you know, one or one recounting was saying that Robert Hansen was paid $2 million for this. I don't, I, I don't really find that credible because according to like the, the, you know, the legal documents about his case, he only ever made about $1.7 million over the course of his entire espionage career. But then there's, um, there's a, there's an unexpected, I suppose, twist in this uh, story as well, because after he sold it to either the KGB or the Russian mafia, which, you know, um, I would say hard to disentangle to say the least, um, they then turned around and sold it to Osama bin Laden. Um, And according to Gordon Thomas in the uh, the Belfast Telegraph, um, quote, Osama bin Laden is using the world's most sophisticated software to track the movements of Prime Minister Tony Blair and U.S. President George Bush. Convicted FBI super spy Robert P. Hansen stole the software known as Promise for his Russian paymasters. They sold it on to bin Laden for three million pounds just a month before he launched his attack on America. Now, I guess like we've we've talked about this story quite a lot and. You um you have you had some interesting thoughts I I reckoned about how if Bin Laden had it how would he have used it Yeah, there's a lot here that I'm I have a lot of question marks. Um, in part, just some basic aspect of basic parameters of the story um, that are going to define you know later follow-ups. Like so again, did Robert Hansen steal the source code? Did he steal a copy of the Promise database that is produced by when you use Promise? Did he steal a copy of the Promise application? You know, um, did he did he steal? You know, was any were these digital copies, or did he literally get a printout of the entire Promise database and run it and copy it on um, one of the FBI's uh, Xerox machines, which we know he was a big um, user of of he had located within the FBI building the the copiers that you didn't have to um, put codes in for um, and he was and he was caught a f- several times um, by people but it never really went anywhere of uh, someone going up and seeing him essentially copying sensitive material and saying hey why are you um, running off an entire copy of all that sensitive material it's being oh yeah I'm just just copying it well in this same article, um, 
He's, Gordon Thomas says, um, as well as tracking the coalition leaders, Bin Laden is using the software to avoid intelligence agencies trying to freeze his vast fortune, estimated at over £400 million and deposited in more than 100 accounts in banks across the world. The software was used to empty. So it's very de definite there. You know, the software was used to empty his holdings in the city of London, Wall Street and other key financial centers. So I am... Guessing that means he had the actual software on his uh, his computer. So depending on when this happens, when this event happens, um, it's a question of what sort of system would Bin Laden then install this on. Um, and 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 I guess an extension is if Bin Laden again, this is why we we bring up the question of well, geez, what did Robert Hansen exactly steal and sell? So if he stole the source code, um, bin Laden would need to compile, have that source code compiled into an application um, and then use that and then, you know, you would use that application. Um, or if it was stolen as a compiled application, then it would only ever operate on one specific uh, hardware setup. And that may be you know, a, uh, a mini computer setup, you know, um, that hadn't been sold in 10 years because one of the, you know, the undercurrents of, of the FBI at this time is that their computing infrastructure was, was outdated. Um, so I got to really, I got to wonder, it's like, okay, so great. We put a copy of promise in, in, in Laden's hands. Tell me the computer that he's using it on. And, and really to go from there, it's, you say, you know, accessing accounts and things like that is BCCI was using it, you know, internally to deal with their accounts. Um, but again, it, it's promise is nothing without the data that you put in it. So BCCI was able to put all of their account data into it because it was all of their account data. They were the bank. Um, so it's once you get to the point of, of Osama bin Laden is using this software to track how where Tony Blair is flying, um, you know, to do his, to move money around, to do all, the, all these things, it's okay. So what's, what is the source database that he is then acting upon? I definitely buy that it was possible for him to have been using it to, you know, access uh, his bank accounts and facilitate money laundering and shit like that. Because I mean, they were using it for that at BCCI and whatnot. But yeah, I just, I want more details. I want to know what, what did his setup look like? What was his rig, man? What did his rig look like? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I guess I can't, I can't really answer any of those questions because I, because I have so little to go on. Um, and I guess we can't really ask Osama bin Laden because he's uh, retired and, and not answer, and not responding to to emails anymore. But any, I guess, any of the more of the wilder claims, I would say about. Uh, how promise was supposedly being used and almost it, it's once you get once you get away from promises being used by an established security service to move data around and administer data and 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 track things um that i think is when you need is is when it is reasonable to be more skeptical about what is being asked because in part you you begin to step away from what promise was designed and supposed to do. Since I managed to uh, 
ferret us down a 9-11 rabbit hole. Um, this ties into the weird stories you hear about. Well, I mean, the insider trading, I would say, is pretty well established at this point. But the the weird shit about how Alex Brown computers were taken over by an external computer program on the day of 9-11. And, you know, it was used to facilitate, like, the, the transfer of tens, hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, I... And... <sighs> The implication is always around that, that it was promise that was being used here, but it's it's this same issue about, well, give me more details, you know, like what, how, how, did, how did it work? Like what, where did it go, that money, you know, and what role did promise play in that, you know? To bring it back on track to uh, the issue of uh, Robert Hansen selling it and um, what that might have looked like, uh, you brought a, a truly batshit article to my attention um, earlier in the week about, um, yeah, Intelligence UK article. Now, because of the shit that is in this article, I don't know if I can, I can even point listeners towards it without incurring, our libel laws are so fucked, man, you know. Yeah, I would say it, it. Yeah, it is. It is enormously libelous, um, and 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 transparently wrong in many cases. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of shit in there that is just on its face. It's ridiculous. But um, there are there are some things in there that ring true, you know. Um, and mostly that's the stuff dealing with Robert Maxwell and how he moved promise around the world. Um, he says in this article, in fact, uh, Maxwell had been party to the theft of a computer software package called Promise in California that could track information and money by algorithm. No issues with that. The software had been stolen by a Mossad agent, a notorious war criminal called Rafi Etan, whose career and other crimes are described below. Blah, blah, blah. Maxwell sold a version of the software to a cabal of corrupt KGB, later involved in the coup plot against Gorbachev. <laughs> We're starting to wobble a little bit here and was only murdered by Mossad when he tried to drag them into the Soviet coup plot itself. We have now fallen off the bicycle completely. However, that's interesting that he, he's been accused as being the one who sold it to the KGB in that instance, which then raises the question of why Robert Hansen managed to find a sale if they already had it at that point, you know? Yeah. Wh yeah. Where do you need Robert Hansen to enter in this story? Um, and also, I guess to just uh, you know to, to not get into too libelous terrain, um, but to continue a little bit from from your from your brief recounting there, um, you hadn't yeah we 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 left out the part where all of this is then tied to Vladimir Putin and the 2016 um, election. I want to bring up that that point of of Robert Maxwell selling the software because I think this this leads us to to some some other interesting terrain that, that I believe we've talked about is, is again, it is. So when this software is, is propagated, all right, you have a trap door in there. There needs to be a way of accessing that trap door. If you can't access this bug that you have at enormous risk and expense and, and trial, this thing that is the, this, the, you know, the point of your entire operation, um, you know, if you can't access it, then it's then it's all a waste. It doesn't matter how marvelous this thing was bugged and trapped. So one of the questions is, okay, well, so how do you, I guess, how do you close this loop? 
how do you go from Robert Maxwell selling this the bug software to the bug software being installed to someone from outside accessing this bug software? We have discussed aspects of this, I think, in an, er in an earlier episode, specifically of, uh, again, how you could make hardware modifications, you know, you know um, microwave burst transmitters, so on and so forth. So to return to a name that we had brought up earlier in this episode and, and in other episodes is um, Edward Snowden. So part of Edward Snowden's revelations, and again, he is discussing the his contemporary work, um, but it's still, it is applicable uh, backwards, is that the, the intelligence services in the United States essentially operate um, clandestine factories where bugged software and bugged hardware are integrated, you know, where you do all the modifications. Um, and this kind of answers a, a question of, okay, well, well, geez, how do we, how do we get the bugs into the hardware? You know, you know, do we, do we intercept the hardware in, you know, when it's on, you know, when it's on its way to the location, you know, do we, uh, you know, do we break into the place and install this? And, and well, one of the ways that you answer that question is, well, no, you just, you have a, you have a, 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 a factory that you have set up that is under the control of the, you know, one or more of the intelligence services. And they just from beginning to end, soup to nuts, they, you know, they as get all the components, assemble it, do all the testing, blah, 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 send it out, actually operating like a normal, I guess a normal computer assembler, you know, or or uh, or a normal customization shop, um, but they are putting more customizations and and special things in there than than uh, is is disclosed to the client. The, I love this aspect of the story because back during the uh, the height of the Inslaw affair, the Hamiltons actually made this exact assertion. They said they had a source that um, had told them that the CIA had a contractor-operated promise packaging facility in Herndon, Virginia, that was headed by a CIA Division D employee who was a retired US Air Force Major General, and that this facility had furnished computer hardware and specially prepared copies of promise for all unauthorized intelligence applications of the software. Uh, and this was all part of the NSA's follow the money signal intelligence program as well. Now, to the best of my knowledge, uh, Snowden never made any claims about Promise specifically, but he did unintentionally verify uh, the claim the Hamiltons made back in the late 80s and the early 90s that the CIA and the NSA were using contractors to manufacture bugged software or hardware at factories that they owned. And it's confirmed essentially 100%. And again, in this, we are answering a rather uh, difficult question. Again, promise is not something that you wake up one morning and you go to the office and, you, and, and it's taken over your systems or you're out browsing the internet and you click on a link and promise has locked down all your files and it wants 10 bitcoins before it's going to free them up. Promise is something you have to go out and request and ask for. You go and you talk to a salesperson and the salesperson gives you the pitch and you give back to the salesperson um, the things that you want customized with the software and you tell them what specific version of hardware you are interested in. And that then goes back with the salesperson to the factory and the customization locations. Because you have 
essentially the CIA operating its own almost, you know, computer factory. It's again, they are able to do all of that and they are able to do all of that integration. They have, you know, ultimate access to all the components of the hardware. And so, yes, they are able to install all of the transmission um, equipment that is necessary or needed. And then that stuff is all put in a, in a wooden crate. Um, you know, a forklift takes it and puts it on a truck. And then that truck goes and drives to wherever it needs to be unloaded and then installed. Um, this is not something really that, that is done clandestinely. Again, the editing and modifying of the software and hardware is clandestine. But the seeking out an installation and then usage, further usage of promise, that is anything but clandestine. No, you know absolutely what you are getting when, when the promise salesperson finally shows back up uh, you know, with the truck full of computers. Um, in part because that you have to have a further relationship with this guy um, because you need, you're going to need bug fixes and changes to the software as, as you go down the road. And you're also going to need training materials. Um, you, may, you may need further localizations. So this is an ongoing sort of exchange. At least it probably is, except when the salesperson screws up. Um, and like like in the case of what we'll discuss later of the RCMP. Yeah, and just as a kind of addendum to that, because we mentioned the actual collection of the data, you know, how you transmit it and whatnot. There was a book written, uh, I think in 97 or so, and it was called The Eye of Washington. It was written by Fabrizio Calvi and Thierry uh, Fista, who they're two French journalists. And it's about promise and it's about uh, cyber espionage and whatnot. Now, in the New York Times, uh, Steve Ditlier is uh, writing about the book and he interviews uh, Fabrizio Calvi. And Calvi says the revelation in his book is that the National Security Administration had been seeding computers abroad with promise-embedded smart chips. Now, smart stands for Systems Management Automated Reasoning Tools. We'll be circling back to that, so bear that in mind. And this was codenamed Petri, and it was capable of covertly downloading data and transmitting it using electrical wiring inside the hardware as antenna. Uh, and they did the, they beam this to U.S. intelligence satellites. It goes on to say, "quote A firmware incarnation of Promise would be consistent with earlier claims that versions of the versatile database software had been altered to include a backdoor feature, automatically dialing out on a modem and sending valuable information to U.S. intelligence agency listening posts." You think about that, and then you think about the NSA just seeding computers abroad, as they describe it, and you start to appreciate just how massive this was, uh, still is really. And if I can continue there, when he says um, firmware version, it's not something like that is being installed on a hard drive. It's actually, it is on a, a re, you know, a read only memory module that is uh, soldered into one or more of the the system boards. Yeah. What I'm trying to do is like just illustrate how fucking massive this was. I mean, there's the stuff that Bill told us as well about how while they've been tracking wire transfers of money and, and, and letters of credit and all the rest of it through the world's banking sector, 
they had an NSA cutout sell copies of Promise. And this took in 400 major commercial banks. It took in uh, international financial entities, as Bill described it, such as the Bank of International Settlements in Switzerland, which your antenna should start perking there. It also took in the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund as well. Now, I know we've mentioned before that the World Bank investigated their hardware and said that they could find no bugged uh copies of promise anywhere but they would say that i mean i said that before but yeah um scale that's i guess that's the word uh of the the episode really the scale of this thing to reiterate something that has been brought up but again must always be thought of when when promise is discussed is that the the bugged versions of promise the ill i would say the illegitimate quote-unquote versions of promise those must swim in a sea of legitimate sales you couldn't make this program a success unless you blew this software out to as many people that you could. Otherwise, it would be um, the mere existence of it would be uh, evidence that something was screwed up, that, oh, my God, you got the spy software. Okay, so that's some of the stuff that's a little more grounded. And even if we don't have evidence for all of it, it's reasonable to speculate about because of what we know. Uh, has happened since then, you know, as with like the Snowden revelations and whatnot. But Promise's abilities have also been the subject of like a lot of wild uh, rumors and, and wild speculation. So, I mean, the way I discovered this entire story like 20 years ago was because I was reading about 9-11 because, you know, I was a really cool teenager. And I... um I stumbled across an old message board. It's probably defunct now. And someone in there was talking about Promise being used to hijack the airliners and fly them into the Twin Towers, which obviously, you know, that didn't happen. But that's what got me tumbling down the rabbit hole, so to speak. And then um, in putting this uh, series together, I've kind of been revisiting a lot of those those old claims now that I have a, a better understanding of the software. And there's one guy in particular that I keep returning to, and that's Michael Rupert. Now, I am actually a, a fan of From the Wilderness, and I, you know, a lot of respect uh, for the work that he's done. But some of the shit that he published around Promise is it's very hard to believe, you know. So this is from one of his uh, From the Wilderness newsletters, and he says this, quote, Promise progeny has evolved to the point where neural pads can be attached to plugs in the back of the human head, and thought can be translated into electrical impulses that will be equally capable of flying a plane or wire transferring money. Data such as satellite reconnaissance could also now be downloaded from a satellite directly into a human brain. The evolution of the artificial intelligence has progressed to a point where animal behavior and thought are being decoded. Mechanical human beings are being tested. Animals are being controlled by computers. Now, we, uh, we, we actually did a first go around of this episode and we had like a good laugh about that. But I've been reading a little bit more and chasing some of that up. And when you think about it, like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not agreeing with him that Promise is responsible for all of this, but a lot of the shit that he's describing there is possible or it's certainly getting closer to being real. Uh, nowadays, you know, um, I sent you that, was it a TED talk? Or something? Oh no, it was a, a talk at Davos. 
first off, a video. Uh, it's going to make you see the future and understand a wonderful future where we can use brainwaves to fight crime, be more productive, and find love. Let's roll. You're in the zone. Even you can't believe how productive you've been. Your memo is finished, your inbox is under control, and you're feeling sharper than you have in a decade. Sensing your joy, your playlist shifts to your favorite song, sending chills up your spine as the music begins to play. You glance at the program running in the background on your computer screen and notice a now familiar sight that appears whenever you're overloaded with pleasure, your theta brainwave activity decreasing in the temporal regions of your brain. You mentally move the cursor to the left and scroll through your brain data over the past few hours. You can see your stress levels rising as the deadline to finish your memo approached, causing a peak in your beta brainwave activity right before an alert popped up, telling you to take a brain break. But what's that unusual change in your brain activity when you're asleep? It started earlier in the month. You send a text message to your doctor with a mental swipe of your cursor. Could you take a quick look at my brain data? Anything to worry about? Your mind starts to wander to the new colleague on your team, whom you know you shouldn't be daydreaming about, given the policy against intra-office romance. But you can't help fantasizing just a little. But then you start to worry that your boss will notice your amorous feelings when she checks your brain activity and shift your attention back to the present. You breathe a sigh of relief when the email she sends you later that day congratulates you on your brain metrics from the past quarter, which have earned you another performance bonus. You head home, jamming to the music, with your work-issued brain-sensing earbuds still in. When you arrive at work the next day, a somber cloud has fallen over the office. Along with emails, text messages, and GPS location data, the government has subpoenaed employees' brainwave data from the past year. They have compelling evidence that one of your coworkers has committed massive wire fraud. Now, they're looking for his co-conspirators. You discover they are looking for synchronized brain activity between your coworker and the people he has been working with. While you know you're innocent of any crime, you've been secretly working with him on a new startup venture. Shaking, you remove your earbuds. Is it possible that this is another example of what we've talked about before where tech that's been theorized about or it's in the very early stages of development um, back then, you know, has kind of been lumped in with promise. And as it goes through the, the grinder of becoming like a news story or a blog post or whatever it might be, it all kind of gets conflated into a sort of a mushy soup where there, there are tiny little flecks of truth there, but it's the 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 big picture is not correct that they're painting. Just, do you see what I'm saying? I would absolutely agree. Again, you, you start from the beginning and then you get further and further and further away kind of from, from the truth. I, I don't have to, you know, spend much credulity points to say that, yes, I, um, I'm pretty sure that, that we were not using promise to download satellite data into people's brains. So again, then what do we, what do we then think about this thing that, that uh, Michael Rupert then said? Well, as you said, it's it's it has some elements elements that ring that a little bit ring true. You know, he discussed the what mechanical human 
you know, control of, you know, in, implanting electrodes in the brain and brain waves and stuff like that. And, and that is used, um, then and now, I mean, as forms of that to enhance, um, artificial limbs and to allow the blind to see again. So there, I mean, there are elements in there, even of the most extreme claims that, that are correct. But when you add all of those things, or I guess when you try to attach all of those things to this backbone of promise, um, it just, it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. Promise is not a mind, con I mean, it's not mind control stuff. It tracks things. You know, I just keep returning to that, that the Hamilton said, it, it tracks things. It can't launch nukes remotely. I mean, they, they have that shit now that can do all that, you know, and they have stuff like the Stuxnet virus and whatnot, but we're talking about promise. It tracks shit. And if you've got that trap door in it, you can monitor what people are using it for. You know, you can manipulate data and information and all the rest of it. But yeah, it's the wildest stuff has always interested me mostly because they do have the tech to do a lot of that stuff. But for some reason, it always gets attached to promise. And I don't quite understand why the story is intriguing and scary enough, you know, without having to lump all this other stuff on top of it. It might be that people are trying to explain pr promise to themselves and to others and they, and they're, they're, they're grappling for, for other bits and pieces saying, okay, well, you know, well, it's, can I explain the story of, well, I can't explain the story of promise with what I have at the present. Well, geez, can, does it make more sense if I include, um, you know, monkey mind control or something like that? Um, and, and to, and to some people, yes, then it makes more sense. You know, I'm able, you know, they are then able to describe a potential application of promise, um, that they, you know, that doesn't require them to, to look into what the software actually did or, or, or how it was actually used, um, you know, which things may, that may be out of their comfort zone. So something that we have discussed throughout the series is, is just how the, the, a lot of the, the reporting on promise, um, it just isn't very good when it comes to describing exactly what promise is, how it's used, what it's used for. These real mechanical things um, that you then, you know, these are like the foundation stones of your understanding. Um, and so when you have all of that uncertainty combined with this reputation you know again the reputation really of like a you know a demon or a, a spirit um you know i can i can understand why things get grafted onto the promise story i think this is as good a place as any really to bring in something else that you'll see mentioned quite a lot which is the um automated AI reasoning modifications that Rafi Eitan says he had uh, Lechem uh, staff add to the source code. Now, I have never found a very good explanation of what exactly this stuff is. And whenever I've seen it mentioned to uh, the Hamiltons, they've always said that, that that's a nonsense, basically, that, that it's still dependent on a human being to make the decisions, you know, about the data that Promise uh, shows to you. So yeah, do, do you have anything um, you want to say about that? Or I do, well, Yes, I, I would say that, um, well, we, we can almost discount any 
any store, anything that really uses AI in its description. We already know from our own times that people are using AI to make pictures of anime girls eating hamburgers. Um, you know, they're not using it to analyze databases. So any, any story of AI that doesn't involve anime waifus, um, you know, you can, you can just kind of just, just, just totally discount as being worthless. Well, yeah, I mean, because especially these claims are originating in like the late eighties and the early nineties. And I just, I just don't buy it. The, <laughs> the, the computing power doesn't exist now and didn't exist then to do any of this. Um, and, and I mean, I'm, I'm in the, of the opinion that, that AI is just um, a buzzword. However, what they are kind of in a way describing, you know, it's really it's almost, you say, automated AI reasoning modifications. Well, you can almost kind of take AI out of that and automated reasoning, reasoning modifications. Now, that is a little bit more um, believable uh, because in part it's we already know that Promise was doing this from kind of day one. Um, it would, it was an automated system for looking at a whole bunch of data and then spitting out a conclusion. So, you know, we described the, the case management software. You run a report to see who are the judges that um, consistently don't sentence the convicts to as many years as what should be in the sentencing guidelines. That's your report you run. To give it the automated reasoning modification, you then include into the promise software a line of code that prints at the bottom of the report, don't send cases to these people. That's it. There you go. Bang. We have just gave it reasoning power. This automated reasoning power is only ever as good as like the, the people who program it, you know. I think the implication is that actually promise, I, would, I wouldn't say anyone's claiming it's become sentient, but certainly like they attribute a lot more power. I've seen that claim. Yeah. Oh, right. oh right. Fair enough then. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's, it's kind of wild. Now I figured we could round out this section with a look at some funny fuck ups, really. I think that's, that's the best way to think of them because there were ways that the Hamiltons found out they were being screwed that were it happened by complete accident you know and i guess one of the more famous ones would be uh the time the royal canadian mounted police began an investigation in secret in america to determine whether or not um, their computers had been compromised by bugged promise software Directions on this map, but you're only going one way. This is my favorite part of it, of this story, is the way this starts is a phone rings at the Innslaw headquarters one day, and it's someone in the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, and they are calling for tech support for the promise that they have bought. And the person who's picked up the other the phone at Innslaw says, we never sold you promise. 
that conversation then sparks some real interesting um, flames. Yeah. So this happened around 1990 originally. There were technically two investigations. There was one in 1991, which was the Canadian government examining its own computer hardware. But then there was another one nine years later in the year 2000. Now back in 1990, there was a guy from the Canadian Department of Communications called Marc Valois, who told the Hamiltons that Promise was being used in 900 locations throughout the the Canadian government. And the suspicion was that basically all these uh, all of these installations were were bugged. All these copies of Promise, and then abruptly, those claims are withdrawn, and the Canadian government decides that actually no, we're not we're not bugged. Like don't worry about it. But then nine years later, they begin an investigation again. But this time, it's in secret, and I find that very interesting. Yeah, someone was still was still worried. The the I guess the the initial explanation that. No, no, no. Um, Mark Valois was was wrong, and all these copies of Inslaw Promise that he said were installed all these application, all these locations. Uh, he was talking about something else. You know, he's just kind of like, "Well, he's, he's an idiot. He just made a mistake." Both Michael uh, Rupert and Sherry Seymour, who wrote the Last Circle, uh, which is about Danny Casalaro and uh, his investigation into the octopus, they have pretty good accounts of. Um, this RCMP special mission, I suppose you could call it. It was in August of the year 2000 that apparently these these investigators got in touch with both Mike and Sherry Seymour and told them both that they had actually already traveled. They kind of retraced Danny's investigation in a, a roundabout way. And they'd actually gone to uh, Cabazon Reservation. They'd spoken to Michael Riconosciuto and a number of other sources. So whatever they had heard, they took it seriously enough to travel to America and, and start talking to people. Yeah, the Canadians sponsored a secret mission to find out. Yeah. Almost almost like, as you say, it's like they, um, you know, you talk about people who took Danny Casalero seriously. Well, we have the Canadian, tel- you know, the Canadian security services, they took Danny Casalero seriously. Yeah, something else is quite curious and intriguing about this this story is that uh, that same year 2000 the royal canadian mounted police they actually spoke to a guy called juval haviv who is a rumored israeli spy because of course and he gave them some information about what he knew about promise and it mostly pertained to you know um Maxwell, Rafi Eitan, Ari Ben Menashe, and so on and so forth. But he's quite an interesting guy in and of himself. He's um, now in the private sector. He's like a security consultant. And he's been connected to a fair few uh, scandals and and strange incidents. He wrote a book where he said that the CIA uh, did the Lockerbie bombing and apparently claimed that he had evidence of that. Uh, just, you know, one of those guys, like an underworld fixer again, basically, um, claims that he was connected to Operation Wrath of God, you know, when um, Israeli intelligence went after the people who behind the Munich Olympics massacre, so on and so forth. It's it's a mess, but it's an intriguing one. The question is, well, so then did, did the RCMP and the, and the Canadian security services actually have bugged version, you know, actually have a Inslaw's promise and B was it was it a bugged version of the Inslaw's promise? Yeah, that's it. Because this is 
another interesting tangent we could go down as well, which is it's been claimed that Robert Maxwell, I might get this the wrong way around here, but it's, it's claimed that Robert Maxwell sold Promise to the RCMP and that Earl Bryan sold Promise to Canadian intelligence. That I could have that the wrong way around. But that then raises this question of um, how in sync with each other were uh, the Israelis and the Americans while they were seeding promise around the world. I think one of the the uh, aspects of the fact that there you know there there wasn't any or much coordination is is that you do have a copy that was propagated out there to to the Canadian security services and the RCMP. It was um, someone forgot to I guess take the attributions to the referenced Inslaw out of the computer program. Yeah, which is how they knew to call them when they needed uh, troubleshooting advice. Exactly. Yeah, it said the pro- product was called Inslaw's Inslaw Promise, and they said, "Okay, oh, great, great, we got a problem. We'll just call Inslaw." And it's like, uh, we, you know, I mentioned earlier the, the salesman screwing up. It's like, yeah, that was you weren't you weren't supposed to let them see that Inslaw was a thing, because otherwise, the the I mean, the house of cards falls down instantly. You have to keep them within your your ecosystem. Uh, I don't know if this is a fuck up so much as it is a, 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 a intelligence operative who has decided to cause a bit of mischief, but Charles Hayes was ostensibly a computer equipment dealer and he contacted the US government in, I believe, 1991 and told them that some of the computers that he'd bought from, um, it, it was a government department that I guess just sold, you know, disused government technology. Uh, some of the computers he bought, he said, contained promise code. Um, and the Justice Department, you know, requisitioned these computers, but then refused to release them to the Hamiltons. So whatever they had on there, you know, they didn't want the Hamiltons to see or to confirm if it was promise or not. Um, incidentally, I can hear listeners who recognize the name Charles Hayes, and they may be screaming at their uh, their listening devices right now so just to say yes we are going to be going deeper on charles hayes but that will be in the next episode um we just do not have space for it in this one and i guess in that in that in that story that you just recounted there's something interesting which is one of the contentions of the justice department during this entire thing in during the rather entire case was that the justice department has the proprietary rights on promise. Not in, you know, the, the Inslaw surrendered all rights or whatever. So why are they paying someone for licenses? Yeah. The third and final fuck up. It's the one that when Bill Hamilton told us about it, I had a big grin on my face because rather selfishly, because it confirmed a theory that I'm going to get to at the towards the end of this episode. Shall I shall I just quote the the email? Please go ahead. Yeah. So he told us this quote: Ben Rich, who was vice president of Lockheed Aircraft's Skunk Works in the early 1980s when it developed the F-117 stealth fighter. For um, non-US listeners, that's the really cool looking black triangle plane that um, they released a lot of UFO disinformation about to cover up its development. Anyway, when it developed the F-117 stealth fighter under a contract jointly financed by the CIA and the US Air Force, 
he later published, uh, Ben Rich did, later published a book entitled Skunkworks, in which he claims that a couple of the Lockheed aircraft engineers came to him one day with an idea to develop a database software system for the cockpits of the brand new F-117s. And he further claimed in the book that one, these couple of engineers accomplished the task in a very short period of time, and two, that the software was so incredible that the Air Force purchased a global license to implement that new database software in the cockpit of every US attack aircraft. The software tracked intelligence data downloaded to the cockpits from a US spy satellite about threats and targets in the immediate vicinity of each US attack aircraft and then automatically adjusted the flight patterns to minimize the risk and also to conduct computer-directed firing of the aircraft missiles against specific uh, threats and targets. You might think, okay, well, these two guys, industrious US Air Force engineers, have just gone off and written this code for this database management software. What's the problem? Well, here's the punchline. I received a letter and a follow-up telephone call from the publisher of the official commemorative book for the 50th anniversary of the US Air Force, inviting Inslaw to place an ad in the official commemorative book, which was by invitation only. They stated that Inslaw, Microsoft, and Oracle were the software vendors with the largest installed bases in the US Air Force. However, Inslaw had never sold a single copy of Promise to the US Air Force. So it's very similar to the, the story of the Canadian government, you know. Examples like this are why sometimes you should keep notes on your criminal conspiracy because you forget that the people you fucked don't know you fucked them and then you, you accidentally blow it to them. Or it's, it's you, you go back to the Air Force and they say, uh, well, it's just install base. That doesn't mean, you know, we actually bought it from you. You know, it's public domain, you know, when pointing to the Justice Department. Bill followed up with that. I'm going to be really careful not to read the sections that he told us not to quote on the show. Bear with me. He says, Inslaw submitted a FOIA request to the Air Force Systems Command in Dayton, Ohio, for a copy of the global license purchased from Lockheed Aircraft for the cockpits of every U.S. attack aircraft. The reply Inslaw received claimed that the Air Force Systems Command no longer had a copy of the contract to issue and that I should contact Lockheed Aircraft's new Skunk Works facility in Palmdale, California, to seek a copy. Lockheed Aircraft, of course, is not subject to fire. And I remember saying to you when we read this, I haven't emphasized that enough, actually, but yeah, this championing of privatization and outsourcing, uh, and as well as the money and the networking opportunities and all the rest of it, another good reason to do that and outsource is because of that. You know, a lot of these companies aren't subject to the same regulations and rules as the government is, effectively. Yeah, they're not subject to transparency requirements. And they can make, you know, essentially on the basis of nothing, claims that, oh, this is proprietary or confidential or whatever, or, or just totally ignore you. And there's really, there's nothing you can do because the laws are all written about getting information out of the, the actual official formal government bodies. And then again, the way around this from the government's point of view is great. We'll just, well, then we'll just have a, one line in the, in the official report that we turned this all over to a contractor. You know, we paid, we, we paid the contractor $75 million to do it all. Uh, so yeah, if you, if you want information, you got to go to the contractor. I mean, I really like that, the way you phrased it, actually, when we were talking about 1997 and, and what happened to Inslaw in the end, after they've had all of this um, 
tribulation. And basically you say, by 97, promise is blown, you know. Um, cats out of the bag for a number of reasons. And it's kind of been overtaken by developments that are ongoing anyway and you know like the big tech sector um and so it's becoming just another conspiracy theory i suppose yeah um and superseded by things that came after it for as good and nifty as promise was it was just one tool in the kit you know and they had plenty of other tools at their disposal and more so you know by the late 90s and as uh, the new millennium's approaching Absolutely. And and again, to go back to one of the, the dates that we brought up earlier in this, you know, in this series, is we know that in 1982, the source code is leak, leaks out of Inslaw one way or another a few times. And it gets into the hands of bad actors. So you don't just have like, again, a copy of the of the application that is out there floating around in the world. No, you have multiple different people distributing or or sharing a copy of this the program source code you can then take components of that system out and reuse them you know rewrite things you you know insert them into into other products and i can totally see actually you know someone encountering promise and probably seeing the source code earlier in their computing career or let's say it was someone that started, you know, started working for, you know, you know, the military, uh, you know, on computers. Didn't they go to the private world, the private sector, right? And because again, you do what you know, um, and so because you have encountered this software earlier in your career, it ends up being a formative experience. master dies and the apprentice becomes the new master. So what we are going to do now is look at a few case studies of more contemporary software products that I think it's reasonable to say carry some of the, the promise spirit, you know, uh, and even if we can't prove they're outright knockoffs with a few nifty tweaks. So we've selected and curated these examples specifically because it seems very clear that they, yeah, they were at least influenced in some way by promise and, you know, assorted derivatives of. So something to bear in mind here, we've already discussed counterterrorism as a, a pill for those end of history blues, you know, and the increasing reliance on outsourcing to the private sector. A promise of one of the many tools the man had at his disposal, friends, while he was building up the architecture of the modern day digital surveillance state. Now, earlier we quoted an email from Bill Hamilton where he mentioned receiving a letter 
telling him that Inslaw was a US Air Force software supplier along with Oracle and Microsoft. Microsoft, I'm sure we are all familiar with, and there are a thousand rabbit holes you could disappear down there. Oracle, though, is particularly relevant here because that firm was set up in 1977 by one Larry Ellison, and both he and his company were close to the CIA from the outset. Now first, chew on this. This is from Quartz. Quote, The intelligence community hoped that the nation's leading computer scientists could take non-classified information and user data, combine it with what would become known as the internet, and begin to create for-profit commercial enterprises to suit the needs of both the intelligence community and the public. They hoped to direct the supercomputing revolution from the start in order to make sense of what millions of human beings did inside this digital information network. That collaboration has made a comprehensive public-private mass surveillance state possible today. In the mid-1990s, the intelligence community in America began to realize that they had an opportunity. The supercomputing community was just beginning to migrate from university settings into the private sector, led by investments from a place that would come to be known as Silicon Valley. And in fact, yeah, I'd argue that they were investigating this stuff way before 1993. And don't forget the internet itself is a project of the US security state. You know, that's where it was developed and engineered. So you see, Larry Ellison had worked at Ampex Corporation on a project for the CIA in the mid 70s called, you know, funnily enough, it was called Project Oracle. Now the aim here was to create a mass storage system for the Office of Joint Computer Support. And quite a lot of material about the project has been released via Freedom of Information. And it's in reading through these various reports and memos and letters, you get a feel for how the agency was constantly at odds with Ampex during the system's development. Because what they wanted and what Ampex had promised to deliver had a tendency to keep running up against the technological limitations of the time. And what they wanted was perfectly in line with, you know, like Phoenix program, chaos, what would become the, the seeding of promise around the world, total control, total awareness, you know. But, you know, for, for all that they were at loggerheads with each other, there are plenty of instances where the CIA memos are quite complimentary and about different Ampex staff, you know, whose names have almost all been redacted. So when Ellison split Ampex to make his fortune, he called his new company Software Development Laboratories and the CIA was its first customer. Now it became Oracle in 1983. As of the time of this recording, Larry Ellison has a net worth of $105 billion and Oracle is the fourth biggest software company in the world. A quarter of its revenue comes from contracts with US government agencies. And Oracle are not shy about lobbying Congress and throwing money around to win contracts. Uh, Ellison describes the firm's main tech like this, quote, the Oracle database is used to keep track of basically everything. The information about your banks, your checking balance, your savings balance is stored in an Oracle database. Your airline reservation is stored in an Oracle database. What books you bought on Amazon, uh, your profile on Yahoo is stored in an Oracle database. 
So the board of directors includes people like Renee James, formerly of Intel and operating executive at the Carlyle Group, Ewell Abler of the, the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change, and Leon Panetta, who was the former defense secretary and director of the CIA. Now, a class action lawsuit was filed against the firm in August of, of 2022, yeah, after it was discovered their machine learning tool had built profiles on over 5 billion people for, for fun and profit. That's billion with a B. And the profile that it builds contains everything about a person. Uh, what you look at online, who you email or message on social media, your income, your politics, you know, who your friends and family are, where you work. Basically, they know everything about you. You. And even better, Oracle's database is considered to have the weakest security of all the big firms supplying this kind of technology. And they know everything about you. You, you filthy little piggy. Ellison himself, he has a, a very apocalyptic vision. And nowhere is this better illustrated than his comments to the New York Times in 2002. He said this, quote, The single greatest step we Americans could take to make life tougher for terrorists will be to ensure that all the information in myriad government databases was copied into a single comprehensive national security database. Creating such a database is technically simple. All we have to do is copy information from the hundreds of separate law enforcement databases into a single database. This guy fucking loves the word database. A national security database could be built in a few months. Um, it would contain biometrics, thumbprints, handprints, iris scans, or whatever is best. And it can be used to detect people with false identities. So there's David Carney, he's ex-CIA brass, and he was appointed to run Oracle's Information Assurance Center. And this was two months after 9-11. Here is a quote that uh, he gave to Jeffrey Rosen in his book, The Naked Crowd. How do you say this without sounding callous? In some ways, 9-11 made business a bit easier. Previous to 9-11, you pretty much had to hype the threat and the problem. Huh. So that's just a taste of where our heads have been at while putting together this bit of the series, you know. And when you look at, as we've said, key players in the other firms we are going to discuss, what you find, as with Ellison, is that a fair few of them were connected to the networks surrounding the Inslaw affair back in the 80s. And I think it's fair to say that even if we can dismiss a lot of the wilder claims attached to promise, that doesn't mean those networks haven't been busy over the last 40 years trying to make it all a reality anyway. Yeah. Now, the first and most obvious one is Kiliad. Not Chiliad, as I kept calling it. It's Kiliad. And we discussed this in the Robert Maxwell episode, but you know, we may as well discuss it again here. Now, this is from Business Wire 2008. For nearly 10 years, Kiliad has been quietly working behind the scenes to develop some of the most powerful and innovative software in the US government's anti-terrorism arsenal. 
With the addition of Dan Ferranti, a veteran CEO with a proven 27-year track record in the information technology field, the Washington, D.C.-based company is preparing to extend the benefits of its groundbreaking technology beyond its already impressive client base. After an extensive evaluation of available technologies, the FBI turned to Kiliad to create its investigative data warehouse. Not only did Kiliad succeed where other vendors had failed, but the FBI engagement has proven to be one of the shining successes in the war on terror. Kiliad software helped the FBI earn the only A score on the National Counterterrorism Report Card issued by the bipartisan members of the 9-11 Commission for efforts in tracking money laundering. The FBI reported that Kiliad software reduced the time to process important counterterrorism tasks from 32,000 hours to 30 minutes, saving the cost and time of 170,000 analyst hours over a four-month period and representing a return on investment in productivity savings of 300% over the first four months of use. So it's also not unreasonable to assume that Christine Maxwell, you know, Kiliad founder, probably saw promise while her dad was shifting it from Mossad. Or at the very least, she heard about his capabilities from him. Uh, and we also found an interesting presentation she gave about the company's software, and that's here. Kiliad software tames the biggest of big data, allowing you to find what you are looking for, regardless of where it is or what it is. Within each source, data can be structured, as stored in the rows and columns in databases, or tagged on the web. Or it can be unstructured, like documents, web pages, email messages, Facebook, and Twitter feeds. The data can be under your local control or in the cloud. Whether it has an application interface or not, Kiliad software can virtually merge it and allow you to discover knowledge out of all that information in all of those disparate sources. Then Kiliad software dynamically, indexing on the fly, generates custom recognizers that connect the dots to provide new views of the information that allow you to discover new knowledge relationships. Analyzing it, that's what big data is really all about. Unless you can connect the dots that matter to you in ways that make sense to you, it is just more data. Kiliad learns from what you ask about the data in your own conversational questions. Unlike Boolean-based search engines, Putting more detail into the query box returns more relevant results, not just more results. On top of that, Kiliad software takes you right to the detail in those results that matters the most to give you even more insight, saving money, of course, but also precious time that can make a world of difference. So to me, that's promise. I mean, what she's describing there, it's got a few tweaks and a few updates, but that is promise, basically. Promise for the new millennium. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and in fact, if, when you read any description about it, when not just that, but any description of it at all, you could swear that you are reading the the Inslaw, you know, uh, presentation documents from back in the the late seventies. It, it's almost word for word identical uh, to what they were saying about Promise back then. And pitched to essentially the same audience, and for the same reasons. Yeah, yeah. Because um, I think I forgot to mention this, but Kiliad is a huge uh, contractor with the US government, particularly the FBI. Uh, and in fact, I don't know if you remember this, but a couple of years ago, um, 
there was that weird, it was almost like a, a power outage that affected uh, customs and border control computers on the West Coast. And it was just around the time of Epstein being suicided. And people went fucking ham with that because it turned out that like Kiliad was responsible for managing some of those um, some of those computer systems. And the theory was that they caused a, an outage so that Gillen could just get through with, you know, a fake passport or something. It's very funny. Mm-hmm. Of course, then, you know, then the media reported that they then they don't worry. We, we called up Kiliad and we talked to Steve Kiliad. And he says this is all yeah. crap. Yeah, Steve Kiliad informed us that um, they do not know about this uh, yeah. customs outage. No relationship to Steve um, Jail. <laughs> so yeah, I would I would say that it's reasonable to conclude that the child of the man who had promise in his possession for years and was selling bugged copies of it all over the world. At the same time as she's starting to make her first few ventures in the valley, I think it's reasonable to conclude that she was at the very least influenced uh, by promise, you know. Next, we have Matrix, which was developed by a mad lad called Hank Asher. Now, a little bit about Hank Asher's background here. So in the early 1980s, Hank started flying coke into Florida from Columbia. And he did this for, he says, seven weeks. Then, he says, he quit the smuggling life after an intense bout of guilt. And after that, he picked up a coke habit and partnered up with his friend F. Lee Bailey to, um, and this is how he puts it, clean up the drug smuggling on Great Harbor Cay in the Bahamas, uh, where they were both neighbors. Now, F. Lee Bailey was the ace lawyer who represented a BCCI affiliate called Centrist. He also represented O.J. Simpson, most famously. And he has a bunch of weird CIA connections via his work with uh, William Bryan and uh, Jolly West during his time as a lawyer for the Boston Strangler and Patty Hearst. The list goes on and on with this fucking guy, man. Anyway, Bailey put Asher in touch with the Florida DEA and Hank became a snitch, basically. Now, not for nothing, but Asher had started his coke running operation just as the Iran-Contra operation was getting underway. So, cut to September 13th, 2001. And this is kind of the creation myth of Matrix. So after a few years as a, a freelance programmer, Hank is now the owner of, I think it's pronounced Sizint. Um, It's a software firm, or it was. But, you know, on this particular day, Hank is, he is furious. His nut is freaked by what he's just seen happen in downtown New York. And while he's brooding on the problem of how to prevent more 9-11 style attacks, Hank, he has himself an idea. And over the course of a single night, he writes the code for what will become the multi-state anti-terrorism exchange data mining system. And he calls it Matrix. This is from Vanity Fair. That day at noon, Asher ran a program with 450 million individuals in his vast assemblage of electronic databases. The databases were like books in a library. What he'd done all night 
was write algorithms to flag data in those books, data that might be associated with a terrorist. Then the computer matched names with the data. The 9-11 terrorists, for example, had likely come to the United States within the last year or two. So a non-resident Muslim who started generating records only in that time, phone bills, utility bills, driver's licenses, was primarily a suspect. A Muslim who'd lived 10 years in the same US city and been registered to vote that whole time was off the hook. Is this starting to sound at all familiar? Yeah, no, it, it's, it's in a way, yeah, he's describing, you know, he, you know, he's describing promise. Can I blow your mind by letting you know that Choice Point Public Records, another firm, filed a lawsuit against Hank in 2001 for stealing source codes and computers uh, with the help of one of his own underlings, uh, Timothy Klipsich, maybe Dr. Timothy Klipsich. Anyway, it goes on to say, Matrix would soon be heralded as a state-of-the-art terrorist tracking tool by Vice President Dick Cheney and Homeland Security Chief Tom Ridge, as well as former New York Mayor Rudy Giuliani and senior law enforcement officials around the country. Rudy Giuliani, will remember, had been on the, the Promise Oversight Committee way back in the early 80s as the deal with Inslow was being finalized. I don't think that means anything particularly significant here. I just think... It's quite funny that here we have another example of another familiar face popping up. These people never go away, you know. And talking of people who never go away, Jeb Bush was also a huge fan of Matrix. In fact, so much so that he was basically an informal lobbyist for the program, for Hank Asher. And he rolled it out across Florida's police departments while he was governor and he encouraged other forces across the states to adopt it as well. And uh-oh, what's this? Why? It turns out that in the year 2000, Hank Asher's database technologies firm was the one that was responsible for wrongly labeling thousands of black Americans in Florida uh, as felons by wrongly saying they had criminal records and therefore they were stripped of their right to vote in the election that year. You know, that's the election that Jeb's brother won precisely because of this. Uh, they call it a an error, you know. You got to wonder how many people are on the no-fly list today because of one of the printouts that, that, that Hank Asher um, handed over in, in the early days of, you know, the, the, you know, the, the, the terrorism scare. And you want to know who else was a huge fan of Matrix? John Poindexter. He was the U.S. Navy Vice Admiral during the Iran-Contra affair, and he was balls deep in the scheme alongside Oliver North and the rest. Now, after he was pardoned, he moved into the private sector, and he worked spells at IBM and a software development firm called TP Systems, and he then became Senior Vice President of Syntech. And up to 2002, I believe, he worked on DARPA's uh, Project Genoa which he'd conceived of back in the mid-90s. Uh, Genoa was a counter-terrorism program that analyzed metadata. Poindexter returned to the public sector by taking a role at DARPA's Information Awareness Office. Uh, and it turns out Poindexter was also in the mood for a really big database full of every possible scrap of information about you know 
every person in the United States, which he called the Total Information Awareness Program. This is per Hank Asher. John Poindexter got a specification sheet on what Matrix did, and he added a bunch of things that made no sense, that were invasive, that would be against anybody's grain. Poindexter is no computer systems designer. He doesn't know what data is legal to do with and what's not. It's pretty fucking rich coming from this guy. But, you know, so I'd, I don't really buy that Hank Asher or anyone else contracting with the US security state is overly concerned about issues of privacy and, and whatnot. But it is interesting to wonder if Poindexter maybe ruffled some feathers, you know, by going too hard and too fast, even for Bush the Younger's America. Maybe he just didn't kiss the right asses, you know. And it wasn't only total information awareness that Poindexter got some shit for. It also came out that he developed the policy analysis market, which was part of a project called FutureMap. This was a kind of futures market, but for betting on political developments in the Middle East and elsewhere. Now, theoretically, you could, you could bet on potential assassinations of politicians or terrorist attacks or wars breaking out, you name it, um, and you know, make a, a nice profit in the process. And sure enough, Poindexter was encouraged to retire in August 2003. So what have we got next? Um, how about P-Tech, guys? A little, little P-Tech action. Uh, P-Tech was a software firm based in Massachusetts, and its head offices were raided by the FBI in 2002. This was because one of its investors, Yasin Al-Qadi, had been put on a blacklist, you know, a watch list. And this is owing to his tangled connections to other Saudis rumored to be involved in financing Al-Qaeda through front companies and funny charities and drug trafficking as well. He'd also been flagged because he'd shifted millions into offshore trusts and restructured a lot of his businesses, including moving a few of them to Switzerland and Turkey, as if he was anticipating some kind of investigation. Now, I should point out here, in the interests of balance and, you know, keeping ourselves grounded, that Al-Qadi successfully challenged uh, these allegations, or certainly he through the use of his lawyers, he he had his name removed from the blacklist and he's never been formally charged with anything. But what's particularly interesting is his connection to Khalid bin Mahfouz. Uh, we've talked about him in previous episodes, but in short, uh, Khalid was a major player in the BCCI scandal. He was said to have been a brother-in-law of Osama bin Laden and a financier of Al-Qaeda. And he appointed Yasin Al-Qadi to, I believe, sit on the board of a charity called Moafak, which has itself been accused of funneling uh, money uh, to jihadis. Also, Khalid bin Mahfouz bought promise from Manushe Gobanafir and Adnan Khashoggi. Turning to the war on terror, federal agents raided a Massachusetts computer software firm overnight and they insisted that an initial read today showed no threat to national security. But CBS Boston station WBZ-TV and CBS News have been digging into this same company for months. Jim Axelrod has what our own independent investigation found. Hours after the president and CEO walked out, federal agents went in, 
raiding this nondescript building in suburban Boston, looking for evidence that could tie the computer consulting firm P-Tech to international terrorism. This becomes all the more alarming when you learn exactly what it is P-Tech does. The company works in enterprise architecture, the blueprinting of an entire computer network. Computer consultant Indira Singh says such a company could gain full access to a client's data. That could be rather dangerous. It could be devastatingly dangerous. Especially when you examine the roster of P-Tech's clients. The company's webpage lists the FBI, the IRS, NATO, the Air Force, the Naval Air Command, the Departments of Energy and Education, the Postal Service, the U.S. House of Representatives. Other sources say P-Tech has done business with the Department of Defense, the Secret Service, even the White House. Uh, this is Indira Singh speaking in September 2004 at the 9-11 Citizens Commission. Could you just explain to me before 9-11, I, I sort of missed it, the FBI agent, I mean, when, when did he know what P-Tech was involved in? And you said that he could have stopped 9-11. And I have one more after yes, that. Yes, Agent Robert Wright had been following um, Yasin al-Qadi actually since 1992 and 94. The Quran Literacy Institute was shut down. They knew of his terrorism financing. His investigation in 1998 was, um, was shut down um, in 1999, and he was threatened with uh, Office of Professional uh, Responsibility or Review. And another thing, the, the promise. Now, for everyone, you know, we were talking about that earlier, about the uh, put options. Now, CIA has an automatic safeguard, the promise, where they check any unusual trading. So it automatically goes into the F CIA file, file. So the P-TECH could have possibly been involved with the promise, and that's why we don't get any information from that? or. P-TECH was with MITRE in the, I say, in the basement of the FAA for two years prior to 9-11. Their specific job was to look at interoperability issues the FAA had with NORAD and the Air Force in the case of an emergency. If anyone was in a position to know that the FAA, there was a window of opportunity or to insert software or to change anything, it would have been P-TECH along with MITRE. Who, who's really behind P-TECH is, is the question. Right. Correct. I asked that of many intelligence people who came to my aid as I was being blacklisted, and I was told in DIRA, it is a CIA clandestine op on the level of Iran-Contra. And I have reason to believe this because Care International, that was mentioned in one of the slides, is a renamed version of Al-Kifa, which was the funding arm for WTC 93, Prior to Al-Kifa, it was called Maktab Al-Kidamat, which was the funding arm for the Afghani Mujahideen. It was how the monies got to Osama bin Laden through the Pakistani ISI. I asked the FBI in Boston, how come Mak was being run out of PTEC and 9-11? And um, I, it, it, that jived with a lot of what Intel was telling me, that it's a CIA front, shut up and go away. Um, at that level, I said, well, why doesn't the FBI take advantage of their celebrated differences with the CIA? And I was told, because at that level, they work together. They are work not. Together. That's exactly right. We could get into a whole other area here by talking about how Catherine Austin Fitz, U.S. Uh, administrative official, 
She discovered that uh, DynCorp was using a copy of Promise to manage its databases while contracting for the US government in Iraq, and possibly they were using it in the Balkans as well. But I think that's more than we have time for tonight. We are already going very long. Okay, so there's one more, and we can be pretty quick here. And I've been speaking for like three hours at this point, so my throat is pretty fucked. Um, so remember that Bill Hamilton told us about that factory that was manufacturing hardware and copies of Promise, right? Well, he also mentioned that the CIA's preferred contractor for some of these jobs was originally GE Aerospace. GE Aerospace was bought by Martin Marietta. Martin Marietta merged with Lockheed. There's a guy called Norm Augustin who'd been undersecretary of the US Army, and he was the CEO at Lockheed Martin until he founded InQtel, which is the CIA's Silicon Valley wing. InQtel was one of the earliest investors in Palantir, which is Peter Thiel's company. Now, I give you a description of what its software does, but you know, I think you've already surmised. You can look at Palantir as an incredibly sophisticated version of, I hate to say this, but of the early promise of promise, okay? You've got, uh, I believe there's four main components to Palantir's platform. There is uh, Palantir Metropolis, which is like data integration and information management. Palantir Apollo, um, which is more of a cloud system, I believe. Palantir Foundry, which is used in health increasingly. The really scary one, I mean, these are all fairly sus, but the really scary one is Palantir Gotham. This is the one that's used by the spooks. Lately, they've been adding more and more um, adaptations to it that give it predictive policing capabilities. So effectively, it just monitors a population and it looks for those patterns that we were talking about right at the top of the show, you know, social network analysis. It looks at what a person is doing uh, online, the shape of their digital footprint, and it tries to predict whether or not that person is likely to break the law. So I think it's worthwhile to bring up also at this point, uh, explicitly you have this, this, this software that is designed to fight um, terrorism. But again, there isn't, these are word, essentially all of the stuff is made up. Kind of like every single law that was ever written down in the books has been made up. All the crimes that you, have, you can know of, all those, those, those are all made up. Terrorism is a made up thing that we choose to define certain activities as being terrorists and certain activities as, oh no, these are freedom fighters or, or, or something else. So this kind of connects back into the issue of artificial intelligence of no, these things aren't artificially intelligent. You are telling it what behaviors, what practices, what pattern of lifestyle of people you run into where you live, you know, color your skin, color your eyes, whatever is, this is what terrorism is. I think it exposes that again, we, you know, terrorism or or any of the parameters that are being used in promise or in these systems are made by made by human hands determined from human minds for human social circumstances these are not like we are not directly appealing to some like abstract um 
you know, uh, force of nature, you know, to determine the, these uh, these terms and and why we 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 want to find or 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 not find certain people. So yeah, Project Gotham is a major component of the U.S. security state's counterterrorism work, and just like with Oracle. They're moving increasingly into biotech and healthcare. So as I speak right now, Palantir is already contracting with the NHS here in Britain, and it's about to find out whether it'll be given the job of creating a, a brand new operating system for the entire organization. Um, nobody who knows anything about the way Palantir has made its data available to extremely sketchy outfits like ICE, for one, Nobody thinks anything good is going to come of this. But our current prime minister, uh, Rishi Sunak, he's a huge fan of this company and Peter Thiel because of course he is. So I wouldn't be surprised if they land the contract and then move out into other areas of the, uh, of the public sector. And so that's the story of how Promise and the Inslaw affair went from being a, you know, a legitimate scandal that was dirtier than Watergate to becoming another wild conspiracy theory. And in the meantime, the intelligence community drew on what the software had taught them. They let its disinformation agents run loose. And it, this gave sensible journalists the cover they needed to dismiss the entire thing out of hand, you know. And in the meantime, yeah, this public-private sector alliance between intelligence and, and big tech built the world of surveillance that we live in today. Yeah, You may think that's it. It's all over. But like I said at the start, we have a couple more points on the map that we need to hit. Because despite what they kept telling us all, the future was coming, friends. And it was closer than anybody realized. <laughs>